All right, we're at Ezra chapter 6. Ezra 6. We're rolling through this. Ezra. All right, let's pray over the word. We're going to do verse 1 through 12 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak and minister and breathe on this house. Lord, we don't come to insert our own ideas or ideologies into this scripture, but we ask that what you spoke, Lord, what the Holy Spirit breathed would come to light. And so, so Father, we approach your holy word with fear and trembling. We ask that you would uh, lead us to repentance today. Those that are discouraged, Lord, would find encouragement. And Lord, we would leave this place with hot hearts, desperate to see Jesus proclaimed in this region. And may we leave this place with hearts of worship that say you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. There's no one like you in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth. You are supreme and sovereign and beautiful. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Amen. In our Wednesday night prayer services a few weeks ago, I think that's where it was, I talked um, to you some about William Cooper. Uh, William Cooper was a hymn writer. He was a member of John Newton's congregation. Do you remember John Newton was uh, a part of the transatlantic slave trade uh, until his salvation? And when he came to know the Lord, the rest of his life, he despised the, the transatlantic slave trade. And it was William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament, who came to John Newton and said, um, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving Parliament, and I'd like to maybe go into the ministry. And John Newton responded essentially and said, you need to stay in Parliament and fight the slave trade until you die. Um, and William Wilberforce did just that. Well, William Cooper, a member of John Newton's congregation, Cooper struggled with uh, depression for the entirety of his life and some, some major suicidal tendencies and thoughts, um, deep depression. Guys, we, we want to acknowledge that um, that we are very complex beings. And so uh, many of us are going to struggle in our lifetimes with what we would call today mental health issues. It's a part of life. It can come from sleep de deprivation or vitamin deficiency. There can be physiological things that, that cause depression. Depression sometimes can be circumstantial, right? You lose a loved one and you struggle for months. Um, what we don't want to do is, as people, okay, we believe in the demonic, period. The Bible teaches Jesus casts out demons like every day, okay? And so um, demons didn't go anywhere. They, they are in America too. They can cross continents. Um, and so we believe in the demonic fully. But what we don't want to do is every time someone's struggling, begin to diagnose or to condemn. And so... We get into these really complex issues. What I believe and what I think I've seen from a pastoral standpoint often is when someone has a physiological issue, maybe a chemical imbalance, or they're struggling with some kind of uh, physical issue that's causing depression, I think oftentimes the enemy begins to exploit those things. And so you have a person who's struggling with a physiological issue and all of a sudden demonic whispers start to come. Um, and so our enemy is not above that. He, he actually loves to prey on whoever he can prey on. And so we want to have a kind of holistic approach, a spirit-led approach that does say to folks, like, see a doctor, man. 
um, and there, there might be a chemical imbalance going on. We'll pray for healing. Um, yes, we'll believe for healing. But in the meantime, you're waiting for healing. See a doctor and see how you can better find balance. And on, this, on the other side of the coin, we're not above praying against demonic influence and laying hands on people and saying, in Jesus' name, every demon's got to go. Um, but what we, what we don't want to do is get into this place where we feel like it's our role to constantly diagnose people and to say, you're struggling with depression because you have XY demon. And the solution to XY demon is jump through the hoops that I prescribe for you. Um, that's not a New Testament idea. And so we want to be careful about how we think about depression. I say all that to say that William Cooper struggles his whole life. And um, there's a point in John Newton's life where John Newton pulls William Cooper close to him. John Newton was an incredible pastor. There were many times where he didn't go on vacation because he didn't want to leave William Cooper alone. He would forego vacation to spend time with uh, William Cooper. And John Newton pulled him close and asked William Cooper, who was an incredibly artistic person, to help him write a hymnal for the church. Help, him, help me write some hymns. And it was in this hymnal that John Newton wrote his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, right? Um, and William Cooper, in that uh, same hymnal, wrote a hymn um, called Praise the Fountain Opened. Do you remember? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And William Cooper became one of the most significant hymn writers through his depression and continued to press. Now, as I was studying Ezra chapter 6 this week, one of, our com- one of the commentators, Brynman, um, com- he, he, he quoted a line from a John Cooper hymn that I thought was really interesting to consider this man who wrestled his whole life with essentially fear and anxiety and depression, had to wrestle through it. Um, he wrote that famous hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. You remember it starts, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. This was the line that the commentator quoted. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break and blessing on your head. The, the clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Every believer, every church, every family will have moments where there's clouds in the distance coming and all you feel is dread and terror and anxiety, right? There are these seasons in life. Think of the disciples in the storm where they're saying, then this boat's about to fall apart, right? Like this, this is, we're going under. There, there are these seasons where it, where, where you're, you're waiting and something dreadful is coming. And as believers, we are called to be still and know that he is God. And that is hard, right? Like so stinking hard. And these seasons of waiting, maybe there's a diagnosis, right? The there's a diagnosis that you're sick and there's only so much time and you're praying for healing and you have no waiting for tests or you're, you're waiting for a report for a family member. Those seasons of waiting can be crippling. And, and Cooper is going to say through his own struggle and depression, don't fret. The cloud that you dread will bring blessings to fall on your head. In other words, God works all things together for the good of those who love him are, and are called according to his purposes. And in other words, the enemy has no ability to strip you from God's plan and purposes. And sometimes, I'm probably talking too much now before we even got to the text. 
sometimes in the season of waiting, we realize that we're actually in the season of, of purging and refining, that God allows us to wait and to wrestle because he's causing things to come up in our soul that we need to deal with, right? Like fear or a lack of trust and faith. And so we need to learn, and James will say this, to not despise these moments of trial as we wait and anticipate the report. We need to learn to, with faith, be still and know that he is God and trust that his perfect hand and purposes and plans will come to pass for me. Even if my head is ripped from my body, I still win. Right? And that's the Christian perspective. That even death itself can't snatch me from his plans and purposes. And if the enemy, through some persecution or some crazy act, um, takes my life, the Lord allows the enemy, I believe and you should believe that anything that touches my life passes through God's hand. God can stop anything he wants to stop. And so if the enemy takes my life short, it must be because God intends to use my death to glorify his name and cause many souls to come into the kingdom. And so you see that in martyrdom, right? You could look at martyrdom, um, um, Justin Martyr, pick a martyr, and say, oh, their life was cut short. The enemy got him. And then you can see, like, no, like, even in their death, they were faithful. And all of history tells about their boldness to go to the stake and with confidence trust God. And that martyrdom, that death, it wasn't a, them having life ripped from them. It was a great divine opportunity for them to display to everyone watching, I actually trust Christ and believe I have eternal life. I'm not afraid of the flame. And that testimony is priceless through history. And so we have to, be, we have to learn to not be afraid of the flame. And to trust that no matter what the cloud looks like, it's bringing blessing, bringing purpose in God's plan. Now, we remember Zechariah's prophecy. I want to remind you of this one um, to Zerubbabel. Um, when, when Zechariah prophesied to Zerubbabel, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. So, um, Zerubbabel, again, is the kind of acting governor of Jerusalem as they're working to rebuild the temple. And they keep having these hiccups, right? Like these, these problems show up and they're struggling with discouragement and fear. And Zechariah prophesies, kind of mocking the mountains in Zerubbabel's life. Who are you mountains to think you can stop God's servant? You will become plains before him. And the church needs to remember that. We, we stand in a culture that mocks God. We, we live in a culture that spits on Christianity. We live in a culture that's doing everything it can to unwind basic, a, a basic biblical worldview concerning um, the sexes, genders, um, the, the value of marriage, the, the, the way that kids should be educated to think about life. Our culture is trying to unwind all of that. Now, we don't want to bite our nails in panic. We want to stand and say, the Lord will flip this thing on its head sooner or later. And God will bless his people and use his people. And, and in a sense, there is no safer place for you and I to be than in the will of God. And as long as we're in the will of God, we can look at culture and say, we don't really care what you say. Spit, chew, call. We're in the will of God. We're safe. And Jesus is victorious in everything Jesus does. So, so to the mountain, to Zerubbabel's mountain, God says, I make you a plain. I will flatten you before Zerubbabel. Now, let me just give you, you know, two minutes of context just in case you just jumped in with us. 
um, so we can remember where we are in the fuller narrative of the book of Ezra. And remember, um, Ezra's recording for us what we're studying today is the first wave of Jews who left Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, to return to Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, when he took the Babylonian captives, destroyed all of Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, burned the temple to the ground, Solomon's temple. You know, Solomon's beautiful, glorious temple was burned to the ground. And so Cyrus conquered the the empire of Babylon, who's the first Persian, Medo-Persian king of the empire. And Cyrus commissioned that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild Solomon's temple. Now, that was a big deal because Jeremiah had prophesied, Isaiah had prophesied that the Jews would not be in Babylon forever, but they would be released and they'd be commissioned to rebuild Solomon's temple, rebuild the temple of Yahweh. What we read in the early chapters of the book of Ezra is that um, these men, led by Zerubbabel, again, who's the acting governor, and a man named Yeshua or Joshua, who was the high priest, they laid the foundation of the temple, which was a really big deal. And when they laid the foundation... The old men wept because they realized that this temple would not be as beautiful as Solomon's. The young men rejoiced because uh, they had never seen a temple for Yahweh. Um, again, they lived in Babylon as slaves for 70 years. They're rejoicing that they have a place, they're going to have a place to sacrifice to their God. But what we read as we move into Ezra 4 is that there were some men, some enemies of the people of, of Jerusalem, of the Jews, who began to discourage them. They began to threaten them. They began to try to mess up their plans so much that the Jews became so discouraged that for over a decade, they stopped building the temple. They totally quit on their task. So they leave Babylon with this kind of zeal. We're going to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation and then they quit because they hit some hiccups and frustration. As we continue to Ezra chapter five, we find that God's solution to their discouragement was prophets. God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy to the leaders. And that was one of the prophecies we read today. In their discouragement, when they quit building, Zechariah says to Zerubbabel that your mountains will become plains before you. And so with the support of the prophets, Zerubbabel and Joshua start building again. They start working on the temple. They start, they start um, building the walls. And with all of their craftsmanship that they can muster up, they give themselves again to the call of God on their lives. When we move in Ezra chapter 5, what we find is, again, the commission to build the temple was something like 17 years ago. And now Cyrus is not even a king anymore. It's Darius. And what we find is some inspectors come and they essentially say, who told you you could build this temple? Do you have permission to build? Who are you? What are you doing? So last week we read the letter from these inspectors to the king in which the inspectors are saying to Darius the king, hey, These men are building the temple of Yahweh. We don't know if they have permission or not to build. They're building well. It's prospering in their hands. Um, They say they're serving God. They say Cyrus commissioned them. They say it's the will of God for them to build. What do you say, Darius, essentially? Do you want them to build? Do you want them to continue building? So this is what I need you to catch, okay? Um, They don't have email. So, So the idea of a letter going back and forth takes some time, right? Some months. So there is Zerubbabel and, um, and Yeshua, and they've got the prophets with them, Zechariah and Haggai. They've been building. This is their life work. They're, they're sweating. They're working so vigorously on this temple. And now inspectors come and say, wait, we, we don't know if you have permission to do this. We need to ask. Um, they were of the, the mindset, build now, ask later. Okay, I'm kind of about that mindset too. Um, 
but the inspectors are saying, we're, we're going to have to ask. But what we found is that the, the Jews said, okay, you ask, you send the letter. We're going to keep building in the meantime. We're going to keep working. But there's, a, I would assume, a matter of months in between these letters, okay? And so um, they're in a season of waiting. If the letter comes back and says, stop, they would have just wasted, like, literally their entire adult lives. And um, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the sermon, but remember that this work of rebuilding the temple is, like, their ethnic heritage, right? This is the temple of their fathers. It's their religious and cultural identity. The temple is the center of that. Um, This is their life work, again, that they've sweat and bled. And what are they building? They're building a temple for their sons and daughters, to be able to worship their God. And so the idea that a Persian king can, with the swipe of a pen, destroy their entire life work is tormenting, right? You're, like, they're in a season where the, what, what, what Darius, you know, kind of casually swipes on a letter will either cause their life work to prosper or to fail. And again, that can be a tormenting place to live in. What do they do in the waiting how do they live in the waiting is very important. We read last week that they had confidence, that they um, continued to work. And this week, we're going to read of the day when they finally got the letter from Darius. Again, they've lived in anxiety, wondering what Darius will say. Darius can destroy their entire life work flippantly. And today the letter comes. And so when we start Ezra chapter 6, we're going to read through verse 12. We're going to read the response from Darius to these Jews concerning whether or not they're allowed to keep building or if the commission from the king will be to tear down everything they've worked on now for years. You guys okay with that so far? That was a lot of explaining. But I'm a good explainer. Hallelujah. (laughs) Okay, verse 1 through 12. Then Darius the king made a decree. In other words, Darius responded. And search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel, that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and let also the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its own place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, again, this is where the inspector said, look, the Jews say that Cyrus told them to build. So the inspectors say to to Darius, why don't you go look and see if they're telling the truth? Did Cyrus really tell them to build? And Cyrus, again, I'm working way ahead of myself, um, but Cyrus, first he asked them to look in in Babylon, in Babylonian, the city, to see if they can find the record of Cyrus's decree. But they can't find the record of Cyrus's decree in Babylon. And so then he asked them to go to Ecbatana. Now this city was elevated, and so the, the kings, the Babylonian, the, and the media Persian kings, they would go to Ecbatana in the summer because it wasn't as hot. Um, and so it's actually in the archives of their summer palace. 
that they find the commission from Cyrus, which told the Jews to go back and build. So now for that first portion there, um, Darius is essentially saying, we searched for Cyrus's decree. We didn't find it in Babylonia, but we did find it in Ecbatana. And what they're saying about the commission of Cyrus is true. Cyrus told them to rebuild. And so verse 6, now we're going to read Darius's response. Now, therefore, uh, Tetaniah, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elder of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the building of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priest at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall become a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people, people who shall put a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So when Darius receives the letter from the inspectors, again, he has his men, hey, go look and see if you can find a decree from Cyrus. They search, they search, they search. Eventually in Ekbatana, they find the decree from Cyrus. Um, and, and this is actually really interesting, if you care. Um, but, but Babylon and the Median Persian Empire, we actually have a lot of records. They, they were good record keepers. Babylon, um, we have uh, like entire libraries, um, sometimes like written in pottery, and, but also in scrolls. Um, and so uh, this is very much attested to historically that even in Ekbatana, there was, there was a... Um, uh, a kind of place where they would they would store decrees. They kept good record. Ezra, again, being a scribe, was very interested in the record. And so they found the record at Ekbatana in the summer palace. And then Darius is going to commission, essentially, he's going to say, what Cyrus said, let it be. Now, I want to just make one point off the cuff. The Jews, as they're building the temple and the inspectors come, the inspectors ask the question, who gave you permission to build? I think it is fascinating that they respond with truth, right? They, they, they're responding from a theological perspective. They're going to say, Yahweh, the God of the universe, commissioned Cyrus to decree. So there is a theological aim to their response. But nevertheless, they're, they're responding, um, Cyrus decreed it. They could have lied in this moment or manipulated so they could have kind of conjured up or drafted it. They could have said, oh, Darius told us to do this. We're going to go. And then, they, you know, they whisper, go draft it up to the mob boss, right? Go, go get Cousin Vinny to write something out. Um, they could have lied and manipulated in this moment. Again, these inspectors, they can't get to, uh, they can't get to Darius quick. I mean, it's going to take months to get back and forth. So they could have just lied and said, okay, let's keep building. We can finish this before they even get back. Um, but there's something about the people of God operating in truthfulness. Um, I, I think, I suspect that when we pray, um, 
Paul told us to, to wear the full armor of God and the, the shield of faith which extinguishes all the fiery darts of the enemy and the sword of the spirit. When I pray, God, today I ask that you'd help me to carry the sword of the spirit. I'm praying, Lord, that as I wage war with the enemy, as I press against the kingdom of darkness, I would press according to your precepts, that our weapon is the word of God. Our weapons are not manipulation. Our tactics are not intimidation. Our tactics are the, the plain truthfulness of God's decree, of God's truth, of God's precepts. And I think it's very valuable here to remember that as saints, we never wage war with our enemies. We never wage war politically. We never, we never wage war with using the tactics of hell. We don't use deception. Um, and so I think it's, it's valid to point out here that they, they, they said the plain truth. And, and the truth will always outlive deception, outlive lies. Now, again, I, I, I want to cause you to really consider the tension that they lived in now for months, waiting for this letter, right? Kind of nail-biting, waiting to see what Darius would say. Um, again, this is their legacy. This is their heritage. This is their life's work that could be destroyed with a flippant swipe of a pen from Darius. And, and I would suggest that it's only human nature that out of all of these Jews, there's a couple pessimists. Okay? And pessimists do what pessimists do. And I, and I would think there are a few people saying, this is all going to hell. You, why, don't, why are you still working? You know what? The letter's going to come back and you're going to have to tear it down. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. Stop. You're fools. Why would you ever believe that the Persians are going to let you build Yahweh's temple? But but the leaders, again, with the prophets, are having to rise up in faith and say, no, God commissioned us. They're having to hold on to the prophecy of, of Zechariah to Zerubbabel, which said that the mountains will become plains before us. I know that there's a great um, obstacle in our way, mainly the decree of Darius. But God said that the, the mountains would be flat before us so that we could march forward. So they're having to stir up their faith with the word of God and choose to tell the pessimist, and this is actually biblical. I want to give you permission every now and then. You're allowed to tell the, the pessimist, shut up, okay? It's the only time you're allowed to use the shut up word, okay? Are our kids allowed to say shut up? No, my wife says no. Kids, you're not allowed to say that. Again, God, God's going to allow the fire to be turned up for a season. And, and in this season, the water's starting to boil, right? Everything's coming to the surface. So it's great anticipation. And then imagine with me the day that the letter comes. Like, I, I think there's, there's, there's a crazy buzz around the, the camp. I think the inspectors are coming back with a scroll, with some kind of letter. And, and I think even the kids are going, uh-oh, here it comes. You know, some of you guys play the lottery and you watch every night. Like, maybe tonight's the night. Um, stop doing that. Um, but that. But that kind of, you know, you're not going to win. But that kind of anticipation, you know, like, what's, what's coming? What's coming? A nervousness floats through the camp. I like to imagine, I don't have any biblical proof for this. I like to imagine that Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua got the letter first. They're aging now. Um, and they've been carrying the weight of the anxiety, I would imagine. There's, a, there's an anxiety that comes with leadership, period. There's a, there's a responsibility on their shoulders. I like to imagine they got the letter first, and I like to imagine that they just like let out a yell, like, ah, you know, that kind of, uh, I think all the camp said, 
I, I, we don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, like, it was like, is this good or bad? Is this, where's this going? And I, I think eventually praise rises up. You know, the prophets are now seeing the letter too. And there's a great, like, thank you, thank you, God, that's being released in the camp. And the camp breaks out in praise. It reminds me of, you know, Israel passing through the Red Sea and their enemies are on their tails. And when the waves just on top of the Egyptians, can you imagine, you know, this is where the, the, uh, um, where they begin to sing, where the songs of Israel begin to be released. In this moment of deliverance, I think there's great shouts of joy and singing because the waiting's over and the decree is not going to crush them, but the cloud over their head is actually going to rain blessings down upon them. And God's the master of doing that, um, of causing the thing that threatens your life to actually be the thing that catapults you into favor and blessing. Um, you guys know me, so let, let's just have this conversation. I'm obviously not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not saying that, you know, the bills are all going to be wiped away and you're going to be rich and everything's going to be, you know, comfortable and cush. What I'm saying is that even if it's, even if the fire's turned up, even if things still feel hard, God's going to use that hardness for your benefit and his glory. Okay. And those are two different things. But there are moments where God brings total deliverance. And by God, those are moments to celebrate, right? And so this is a letter of celebration. This is a moment of praise. And I'd like to work for, through for the next 10 minutes or so the blessings that came out of this uh, dreadful letter that they were biting their nails to read. The first thing the letter said um, was Darius commands the inspectors to leave them alone. I think that they know the letter's coming, and I think the inspectors come around every now and again, and the people are biting their nails. So it's, do they have it? Is today the day? I think the inspector's presence makes them feel uh, a bit of fear. Um, but the first thing that Darius says is that the men who they have dreaded now for months is to totally leave them alone. Like, out of their presence, let them work. Don't question them. Don't, 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 even, talk, don't even encourage them. Go away. That was the decree of Darius. Go away. Every now and then I like God to say that to my enemies. Just go away. <laughs> They're commanded to stay away from the project. Now again, the men who are the obstacle are totally cast out and Zerubbabel's mountain becomes a plain. The men who feel like, like they, they carry this aura of they have the ability to shut you down. The decree says... Um, Totally stay out of their presence. The mountain becomes a plain before Zerubbabel. Second, Darius reiterated Cyrus' decree that the inspectors, these governors, these, these officials, they're not only to stay away from the project, to not hinder it, but they're to actually fund it from their own budgets. Um, and now remember, this was a part of Cyrus's decree that the builders were going to have financial funds from the government, but now the, the governor's are not even sure where the decree is. And so you would have to imagine that they've been building off their own resources now. Or like how are they, you've got to imagine that they're, they're, they're kind of scrounging, like trying to find supplies. Like, can you give some, can you give some? And so there has been some kind of financial pressure, some type of ingenuity where they're, they're trying to make this thing happen without full support or financial support. Um, and now God says, uh, 
Darius is going to decree, obviously by the hand of God, that, that no more, that the budgets of the men who have been tormenting them are going to fully provide for the house of God to be built. They're no longer going to scrounge. They're no longer going to dig in their pockets and try to find supplies. That, that mountain of not knowing how they're going to build this project, not having the resources, I think, think th- just think with me for a moment. This text obviously like un- unveils the fact that they had a financial issue. So they're building each day, not knowing where the money's coming for tomorrow. And there's, there, again, there, there's a faith that they've had to walk in, right? Of let's just keep building, God's going to provide. Let's just keep building, God's going to provide. And when the letter comes that they dread, there's full provision from their enemies, which is beautiful. So again, that, that financial hurdle, that mountain before Zerubbabel, God says, it's a plain before you. Next, not only are they to fund the building of the temple, they're to fund the ongoing expenses of the project. And in other words, this is, this is actually like wonderfully detailed. So read with me from verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue and the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven. So obviously the Jews, as if the temple, when the temple is finished, they're going to need sacrifices. So we're now we're not just talking about stones and lumber to build. We're talking about the ongoing expense to cause this temple to function. They're going to need cattle. They're going to need goats and lambs for burnt sacrifices. But this even gets more specific. This would be specific to the Jews. They're going to need wheat and salt and wine or oil. As, the, of course, the priests at Jerusalem require. This is, again, very particular, um, very particular instruction for the Jewish religion. They're saying they need wine, they need wheat, they need oil. Um, make sure you give them all the supplies they need. So in, in, in Zerubbabel and in, in Yeshua's minds, they're just trying to get the thing built. Like, we've we're, we just got to get this structure finished. But God says in the dreaded letter, don't even worry about the structure getting finished. Uh, I've already got the ongoing expenses covered too. And there will be every single day sacrifices made to the Lord. Remember in the text it said, um, it should be provided for them daily as needed. Every day there will be provision. You're not going to go a day with lacking what you need. Every day there will be provision. So Rubabo's mountain becomes a plain before our God. And finally, watch this. Um, Darius threatens the enemies of the Jews who have worked to discourage them in the past. So again, there's something like 17 years between the laying of the temple's foundation and the conclusion of the building. And so in the past, they've been tormented, they've been discouraged, they've been threatened. In the past, they've had great obstacles by enemies, by people who live in the land. Okay, we experience this kind of thing with the church. There are people who don't like them. There are people who throw stones at them. And they, the, the text literally said in Ezra chapter 3 that they had become so afraid, so tormented, that they just quit. So if they've got supplies and the inspectors go away and they're going to have provision to continue to build, they've still got to deal with these people who are constantly threatening them, threatening their children, trying to, trying to mess up the process. 
But even that Darius is going to deal with. And he says, if anyone, if anyone gets in the way of the building of the house of this God, I want you to take a pole from their own house and impale them on it. And then I want you to cause their house to essentially become a community porta potty. Okay? Their, their house should become a dunghill. The mountain becomes a plain before Zerubbabel. The challenge is not a challenge for our God. And all of the fretting, and all of the anxiety, and all of the nail-biting, and all of the sleepless nights, all of the tossing and turning was for nothing. Because when you live in God's will, there is no safer place to be. When you can say with confidence, I rest beneath the shadow of his wings. When you can say with confidence that my God is my strong tower, my shelter, and all I have to do is be still and know that he is God. When you can say that, there is no need to toss and turn. And the enemy loves to torment us. And, and, and I think that's where we have to begin to pray again. Lord, Lord, give us the shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy, the discouragement, the fear, the anxiety. I like to use the image of having a shield and putting your shoulder in. Right? Like I'm leaning in with faith and everything the enemy's throwing is slap and steel. He has no ability to cripple me because I have a shelter. And in him, I'm totally victorious. No weapon formed against me prospers. And again, height, depth, width, angels, principalities. No one will pluck me from the hand of Jesus. I rest totally secure in the plans and the provisions of our God. Yes, there's spiritual warfare in this life. There's no doubt about that. But the enemy will not be victorious over Christ Jesus' saints. We will triumph over the enemy. Again, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a, but there's a decree, a prophetic declaration from the mouth of Jesus that we rest in. Zerubbabel's mountains continually become plains before him. The obstacles are crushed by the hand of God. The tormenting letter turns into a letter of great blessing. So worship team, come for me. I'll get ready to close. We can begin to ask, okay, we read the story from Israel's history. We see God's provision and breakthrough. What are the lessons that God intended us to extract by recording this narrative? What, is the, what does the voice of the Spirit want us to uncover in this text today? And I think the obvious answer would be that if God is for us, who can be against us? When you start to live in anxiety and fear and nail-biting, you are allowing your devils to become too big and your God to be too small. My God is much bigger, supremely, like, like extravagantly more glorious and omnipotent than my enemies. You have too small of a God and too big of a devil if you're living in anxiety and fear and tormented. We've got to get to the place 
where we resolve in our hearts that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We learn that if we hold on long enough, all we have to do is sit still and hang on and we will see our victory and the things that threaten us in the end will actually bless us because our God is sovereign. And and I think that the supreme question that rises to the surface from this text is a simple one. Are we in his will? Are we living our lives totally for his glory? Because if the answer is emphatically, yes, my life is Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is alone. And I live just to bless him and just to serve him. If your answer is yes, then you have nothing to fear. And I think as a church, we can um, largely say, yes, our lives are for Jesus. There's no safer place to be than in the will of God. When we hear his call and respond with diligence and faith, we can be sure that we're resting in the shadow of his wings. And so, in context, again, to draw the parallels between this text and the New Testament commission to build the church, I think that we we can easily look at culture and look at all the threats and all the obstacles. Like, we, this is the things Christians say to each other. Um, Satan owns Hollywood, and Hollywood owns the influence, and, and they're all in, in bed together just trying to, you know, kind of cause our kids to decay and rot. And, and what are we going to do? We're just, old oh, little me. But I think when the church rises up with confidence and faith, there is no old oh, little me. I actually am old oh, and little. But my God is not. Right? Like, I'm, I'm not actually that influential or articulate or like, I, I freely confess that I, in and of myself, I have no ability to turn the tide. But I'm not in and of myself. I exist in Christ Jesus. And all he has to say is, sit down, waves. And the waves have no choice. And so as a church, we don't want to embrace this posture that's like, oh, our grandkids are never, never going to walk with the Lord. What great trials. The enemy's got them. We want to get on our toes and say, oh no, our God is much bigger. And there's nothing, good God, hear me say this. There's nothing like the presence of the Holy Ghost. I don't care how, how much pleasure there is in sin. There's nothing like the glory of God invading a kid's room. How many of you as teenagers, you experienced the power of God come upon you? You were at some camp or on some vacation and the Holy Ghost met with you and you, you were never the same. We have a great, great benefit, a great upper hand on the enemy is the power and the presence and the glory of the Holy Spirit. And you could say, oh, the drugs are enticing or free sex is enticing or or our kids are going to go after the money and they're just going to live for their own pleasure. And that may be so, but all we need is one night for the Holy Spirit to step in and touch their heart. All it takes is one time to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And I can't go back. I can't go back. I can't not deny the glory of Christ Jesus. can't deny that. I can't for a day forsake the beauty of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing as sweet in my life as knowing his voice. Stop glorifying the tactics of hell and remember the great benefits we have in the person of the Holy Spirit. The things of this world are strangely dim to the same because their eyes have been called up to look on the very glory of heaven 
And there's nothing on this earth as beautiful as Jesus. And if you don't believe that, let's go back to ground zero and start over. I've talked for too long. Go ahead and stand to your feet. The clouds we dread will soon release blessing upon our heads. The clouds we dread will soon produce blessing. Altar team, will you get in place? And Annie, you want to come for me? Annie I felt a word from the Lord that I thought lined right up with what I had been preparing, and I wanted to ask her to speak that to us this morning. I felt the Lord want to give an infusion of faith for the body of Christ today. And he led me to Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So today, the Lord wants to give you an infusion of faith. He wants you to, the prayers that you've already been praying, that you feel like, why am I praying this? Why am I doing this? come today. Say them again. Let us stand with you in prayer and let uh, the word transcend all understanding and let it guard your hearts and your minds today. Amen. Let's start there. If that word hits you at all, we're going to open the altars. I want to ask you if you've in any way, in the slightest way, been experiencing anxiety and fear. There's no shame in this church. We don't do the shame game. Um, but I want to ask you to come and let's believe for the, for the Holy Spirit to release fresh peace on your life, fresh faith on your life. If that's you, the altars are open. I want you to come as the worship team begins to sing for us. Come on, you just need a fresh touch of peace on your life today. given your life to Christ Jesus, you're not a Christian, you've never confessed faith in him, we want you to know today that all of your sins, your shame, your guilt was dealt with on the cross of Calvary, that Jesus wore your shame, he endured your punishment, the scriptural promises, if you would come and confess faith in Christ, repent and make him Lord that all of your sins would be totally eradicated as far as the east is from the west. There would be no record kept of your, your, mistake, your mistakes, your sins, your guilt, and that God would declare you legally, declare you justified, totally clean and righteous. You can be sure that God is your Father and that heaven is your home. You have no fear 
of hell or punishment. If that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, it's a free gift. There's a free offer this morning. If you'd like to come to the altars, we'd love to lead you through a simple prayer and you can be sure that you belong to him and that your sins are forgiven. Come on, if that's you, don't leave this place without meeting Jesus today. Hallelujah. I love your presence. I love.